This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, I know it's been a while since we have done a Q&A, so we've gotten some questions that have built up over time. But before we get started and launch into Volume 7 of Q&A, I just wanted to thank you guys that have... You know, listen to this podcast, shared it around to different people, uh, but especially to you guys that have left us a review, a five-star review, okay? So on iTunes, the way that you grow, the way that you move up the charts, the way that you get shared, the way that you get included on pages like, hey, if you listen to this, you might like this also, is if you leave reviews. So if you go into iTunes, if you guys would do me a huge favor, if you're not driving, if you're somewhere safe... Go ahead and pull over and leave us a five-star review, whether you listen to this on iTunes or Google Play or or any of the places that you do that. Leave us a five-star review, but make sure you leave us, you know, three, four sentences, something like that, just to kind of let us know, hey, this is what I like about the content. This is, you know, what it is. If you don't think we're a five-star review, just don't do it. You know what I mean? I'm trying to keep it at five stars, so just leave it alone. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and launch into the first question of the day. Here we go. What role do we as resilient, manly men of God have in the rectification of the degradation that exists in the society that we live in? And so, i.e. the loss of the family unit, divorce, infidelity, sexual immorality, gender identity, homosexuality, violence, and mass shootings, etc., etc., etc. So, um, I wanted to talk about this one first because this is a... This is a huge question and maybe the most important question that that we deal with uh, in a lot of times in our lives because a lot of us... I've been asked this question a lot of different ways. I know I'm kind of stumbling into my answer here, but I've been asked this question in a lot of different ways. And this was one of the more cogent ways that I've seen it put. But for us as guys, we struggle with, okay, we've defined the issue. We see the issue. We agree that it is an issue. Now, what do we do? Right? And the thing about it is, is I want, I want us to be as actionable as possible. I am always wanting us to, to find ways to where we can actually move towards a solution of some kind. And so these are going to seem a little bit nebulous, uh, some of the things that I came up with, but I, I really think there are some things that you need to get right from a mindset standpoint that will then lead to better actions on the back end. So the first thing that I would say for you to do is actually be resilient, right? To, to actually be resilient. That may seem kind of ridiculous to start there, but most of you guys don't even know what that means. And I don't mean to be demeaning, but like the definition of being resilient is basically being able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. That's what being resilient is. You know, if you guys have been listening to this for any length of time or or read the devotional and you version or any of those types of things, you know why I, I talk about resilience and not strength, because strength is something that can wane. Strength is something that goes up and down depending on the day, but you can be resilient until the day that you die, right? And the thing about it is, is, you know, if this is withstanding and recovering quickly from difficult conditions, culture is replete with difficult conditions right now. I mean, the the guy who asked this question, he listed a bunch of them. He listed, I don't know, a half dozen or so of things that, you know, our pastors certainly aren't talking about. I'll go back to his list again because it was good. The loss of the family unit, divorce, infidelity, sexual immorality, gender identity, homosexuality, violence, and mass shootings. I mean, I, I think I've heard pastors recently uh, maybe maybe touch on infidelity. They kind of ignore divorce because if they go into the divorce side, then they obviously have to talk about the fact that anyone who's gotten divorced without the covenant being broken and then got remarried, that those people are living in adultery. That's kind of an awkward conversation and people don't tend to want to give as much. Um, you know, sexual immorality is an easy one as long as we don't talk about specifics. No one's talking about gender identity. Uh, homosexuality is becoming a hot topic that if we talk about it, oh, what are, we, what are people going to think about us? And you don't really hear anybody talking about violence or mass shootings. But for us, we need to actually be resilient. That's why I like beg you guys on a weekly basis, you need to be cultivating manly resilience. You need to be focusing on your, on forging your spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Like that's your responsibility. 
So that that's one thing you can do. But the second thing I would say is just stand up for truth, right? I mean, a lot of the problems that we're having in that list of things that we've listed up there is that people aren't being truthful. I mean, the easiest one's gender identity. Yeah, people that are literally trying to rewrite science so that it fits within their worldview. It's absolutely absurd. I mean, it, it brings me back to John 1.14. I know I quoted a lot, but, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Everyone focuses on the first part, grace. No one really likes to talk about truth because when you talk about truth, that means somebody's going to be on the wrong side of the issue, right? But for us as guys, we have to stand up for that. And the third thing I would say to this question is don't take any crap. My goodness, the, the <laughs> female, that's not even a word, female, anyway, I'll leave that in there just so you guys can know in case you ever thought I'm a wicked smart guy. I just said female on a podcast, but I was going to say more <laughs> the effeminate, the effeminacy that I see out of guys that just kind of let society and their wives and people in the church just kind of bowl them over. Good grief. Where are the strong men at, man? Where are they at? I mean, don't take any crap in in this modern society. Be bold. Be willing to be bold. Don't let incorrect information slide. Even if you're having a debate with somebody or a cordial argument that could be considered a debate by an outside observer, like, let's just be honest and just when someone says something that's false, call them out. Like, you would have no problems correcting a four-year-old if they said two plus two equal ten. You have no problem with that. But all of a sudden, you know, someone says something that's incorrect about abortion or incorrect about immigration or incorrect about the gospel. And all of a sudden you're just going to, well, maybe they're right. I don't know. I mean, we need to be a corrective force, guys. That's part of the thing, the the part of the thing that we're struggling with culturally and part of the reason why we're getting, you know, just ran roughshod over is, is because we're just letting people do it to us. We're just allowing it like it's OK. It's fine. I mean, it goes back to that poem that I that I did an entire podcast about about like, you know, hard time makes hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men create hard times. Like it's just, it's one of those things that it's because of this continuum. We have so many guys that are just so comfortable that they never want to do anything that could possibly be seen as offensive or, or bold or, or corrective in any way. But guys, if we're going to stand up to culture, we have to be resilient. We have to actually be resilient. We have to stand up for truth and we can't take any crap. So there you go. All right, next question. What do you think the proper use of swear words or aggressive language is for a Christian man? So uh, some of you guys that have listened to this for a while, I've actually answered the first part of this question before. So if you go back to episode 21 of this podcast, it was our third Q&A episode. And I, you know, just to basically do a good refresher, I kind of talked about my opinions and kind of what my experience was with, with cussing and what other guys have seen and done. But the three scriptures that I brought up that I think are helpful, which I'll go ahead and repeat here, are Colossians 3.8, Ephesians 4.29, and Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. So I'll read Colossians 3.8 here. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And then Matthew 12, 36 and 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Before your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. Okay. So 
that's the thing. You know, I've talked about that a lot. I talk about how I'm like a reactive, you know, swearer, right? You know, I stub my toe, someone cuts me off in traffic. You know, I'm angry at myself. I'm not a casual swearer. Like I don't just like say it in casual conversation to fit in or look cool. And again, I have a longer answer on episode 21 of this podcast. But I do want to talk about the second part of this. And I don't know if this is necessarily what the person meant, but the aggressive language part, in my opinion, that is a completely different story aggressive language. Okay. So the thing about it that I feel like a lot of men struggle with right now is there's way too many people in their lives, male and female that are talking to them very softly, almost like they're this porcelain doll that if you were to raise your voice and be the least bit aggressive, that they would just poof into a bunch of pieces and they would be soaked in the tears of the person that did it. Just this, this nonsense that, that these kid gloves that we treat men with. Now, I'm not saying you need to walk around and be a jerk to everyone that you've ever seen. Like that, that's not what I'm saying. But sometimes aggressive language is absolutely warranted. Absolutely warranted. And it may rub people the wrong way, but that doesn't matter. What's funny, there was actually something that came up here recently. So at the church I go to in Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, there was a guy that, um, I, I don't know if he's been tasked by the church or... Uh, I don't really even know what this guy's role is. I don't think he's on staff, but anyway, there was another guy that met him and they're trying to get some stuff going with men's ministry in the church and, you know, all that kind of thing. And someone suggests, Hey, you should talk to Kyle. You know, he's, he's, he's a guy that's really thought a lot about this and has done a lot in this space. So you should talk to him and see what he has to say. Now I knew it was going to be interesting conversation when I sat down and the guy goes, well, you were introduced to me as the hardcore men's ministry guy. I was like, Uh, Okay, here we go. It's just like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess you could put me in that category fairly accurately, but we're just having a conversation. You could tell we were agreeing on some points and disagreeing on some, trying to find some common ground. But at one point uh, I said, you know, a lot of guys don't really like uh, going to church because especially if they're mainly men, because they walk through the door and they see all these doughboy Christians and they're like, man, I don't want to be like these guys. And this guy took such offense at the fact that I said doughboy Christians. Like he was like, well, well, that's not very nice. I was like, what are you talking about? It wasn't supposed, it wasn't supposed to be nice. Like these guys shouldn't be doughboys, but they are like, they're not taking care of their bodies. Like they're, they're not cultivating physical resilience. You can see it. Like if you look at them, like, wh- what do you mean? And he was just like, well, would, would Jesus have said something like that? I was like, I, I sure, I sure hope so. I certainly hope that he would. And the thing that he was, is he was so offended that I had used something that would be seen as derogatory. And just in the top of my head, I said, brood of vipers. And I said that out loud to him. Like, he's basically telling me Jesus would never say anything derogatory or mean towards anybody. And I'm like, he called a group of dudes a brood of vipers. Now, I don't know what the corollary or the comparison would be to what you would say in 2018 to elicit a response that these guys did. But these dudes wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill Jesus for calling them a brood of vipers. And you want to sit here and tell me that Jesus would have just tried to use loving language the entire time that he he wasn't going to be aggressive in any way, shape or form. Do I need to remind you about him clearing the temple about the fact that he didn't have a whip on him when he showed up, that he went and got one or went and made one and came back in an act of premeditated aggression and cleared the temple. And you want to tell me that he probably wouldn't have said anything aggressive. So here's the thing, guys, if we're going to model ourselves after Jesus, that we, we should model ourselves after all parts of Jesus, right? 
not just the aggressive parts, but also the grace-filled parts. Remember, came full of grace and truth, both of those things. That's something that we should do. And so my challenge to a lot of you guys is take the kid gloves off when you're talking to other men. I don't know if I've ever told this story on a podcast before, um, but back in the day, whenever I was still, you know, really struggling with porn and, and that's something that's probably going to be a struggle for the rest of my life in terms of, you know, not going to it. And in, in to, to be honest with you, I will go years without looking at anything explicit uh, sexually. And I know we'll get more into that in a future podcast. I want to go and talk about pornography exclusively, but this would have been, I don't know, close to 10 years ago when, um, you know, I was trying to just basically kick this habit. Like I couldn't figure it out. You know, some people deal with alcohol, some people deal with anger, some people deal with porn, whatever the thing might be. And so I go to this group and I guess it was like a support group or something like that, or an accountability group. I can't remember exactly how they described it. But basically, they broke us up into groups of six or seven uh, guys or so, and then we just kind of went around in the circle, and guys kind of said how their week was, now how they've struggled with something, or, or how they've overcome, or something like that. And every single guy in the group had messed up, or acted out, is what they said. So, but the thing about it was, is I was sitting there as a guy that you know was basically look at looking at porn and masturbating you know, in my early twenties, just doing it like, oh, this is normal until it became like, oh, this is probably a bad thing. I need to get under control. But these guys were in a little bit of a different category, a little bit more advanced than I was. There were uh, guys that were having affairs. There were guys that were acting out on on homoerotic, um, you know, stimuli of some kind. There was one dude that was a pharmacist and he had this habit of like, hooking up with random people. Like there was some app where it's like, all right, meet, meet in the Walgreens parking lot. I'll be in the, you know, the, the black van and come on in and we'll just do whatever we need to do. Like this guy ended up getting a venereal disease of some kind, a a sexually transmitted disease. And he passed it on to his wife. Don't worry. It gets better, but he's a pharmacist. Remember? So he saw the signs that she was having this STD. He gets a prescription and sneaks it into her food, right? You want to talk about a crazy story. So covering his tracks, like to an extreme degree, like pretty crazy stuff. But I, the thing I remember most about this scenario was the guy that was kind of leading our discussion group was so, oh man, after every guy would admit whatever thing they had done, he'd be like, oh gosh, you know, that's, that's gotta be a tough week. I bet that was tough for you, man. You know what? Uh, you made it two days without jerking off, man. The, great. Good job. Good job, man. Try to make it three next week. And I'm sitting there like, are you serious? Is this really going to happen? This is how we're going to do this? This is an accountability group? Don't you guys think that a little bit of aggressive language could have done some good in a group like that? It's this gigantic room of beta males, all of us sinners, all of us in need of help. But is this really the way to, to change? Because these guys come every single week and say the same thing and don't change at all. At what point are you going to change the tactics? My goodness. Like, <laughs> I didn't understand. Like, I, I literally went to this group and I didn't go back because I was like, this, this is some poisonous stuff. This is a contagion that these guys, it's just this contagion of effeminacy and weakness. Like, I just couldn't take it. And so, again, the aggressiveness, I feel like there's a place for it. If you're pushing someone away from sin or, or towards the Father or away from some sort of horrible lifestyle that could end up killing them or something like that. If the, if the situation calls for it, be aggressive, right? Like you don't need to get in somebody's face and blah, blah, blah. You're going to do this and cuss at them and go all crazy and stuff like that. But you might, 
you might need to get in somebody's face. I got to tell you guys, there have been times in my life where dudes that are my in my foxhole, right? My foxhole dudes, where they've yanked me up by my shirt and they're like, brother, you're not going to do that again. I mean, they could have cordially invited me for coffee and we could have discussed it as rational Westerners, right? And, and come to some sort of agreement of how I would change my behavior going forward and all this stuff. And it may have been great. But at that moment, I just needed somebody to snatch me up. How many of my football players out there got snatched up by your face mask by one of your coaches, right? He took his whistle and beat you in the helmet a couple of times to try and get you to listen. Didn't that get your attention? Right. And I'm not saying that you have you can only be that way if you're a coach, guys, like don't don't take this too literally. But but guys, when, when you get snatched up by, by another guy, you give them your full attention and you better listen to what they say. So I absolutely, absolutely think there is an appropriate time for aggressive language. All right, guys. Next question. Do you think Santa Claus takes away from the real meaning of Christmas? This one's pretty easy. Yes, absolutely. I feel like Santa Claus is a gigantic distraction from the real meaning of Christmas. And and I'll just go ahead and say this. I don't know if this is sacrilege or what the deal is, but my wife and I have discussed this. Again, we we don't have any kids yet. Uh, we, w- we would like to, but we don't have any yet. We're not going to tell our kids that Santa's real. Like, we're just not going to do that. Because, I mean, first of all, it's a lie. So you would be lying to your kid. And I know some of you might be like, well, you know, it's just a white lie and we're letting them uh, believe certain things. But you know, it's, it's a mythology, right? The, the, the Chris Kringle side of Santa Claus, not the actual St. Nicholas, but like the Santa Claus character that pops down your chimney and eats all your food and leaves, leaves a presence. Like it's a myth. And I don't think it would be appropriate for you to allow your kid to believe in a myth like that. I think that's a little bit weird and it, it kind of distracts them away from, from the real reason for the season, right? Because here's the thing is everyone knows the story of Santa, but how many kids grow up knowing the story of Advent? Or, or even knowing what Advent is, right? I didn't grow up in church, so the first time I heard of Advent was like, I mean, goodness, like maybe three or four years ago, to be honest with you. Because even when I started going to church in high school, they didn't do Advent. I didn't know what it was. So I, I knew that there were like these calendars that every day you would like open it up and there was like a piece of chocolate or something like that. But I didn't know what that meant. I thought that was just something to help prepare you to get excited for Christmas or whatever the thing was. So, so that's something that's, that's kind of interesting, but, um, I I really do think it distracts from the real meaning of Christmas. And I'm not saying that, you know, you can't watch Rudolph the red nosed reindeer and your elf or whatever your favorite movie is and, but celebrate it for what it is. It's just these stories that, that are mythological or made up stories. They're, they're fiction stories. Like don't try to turn it into something that's real, but I do think it kind of sets kids up for failure to a little extent. I can't remember who the first person to point this out was, uh, okay. Andy Stanley. It was Andy Stanley that pointed out. He said for most kids, they learn about who Santa Claus is and the Easter bunny around the same time when they learn about who God is. Right. And so if you think about it, you know, Santa Claus, Easter bunny, God, well, they learned pretty quickly that Santa Claus and the Easter bunny weren't real. But if in their brain it's attached to this other entity called God, like maybe that's going to have some issues for them moving forward. Again, we're not putting those on the same plane, but it's confusing enough for the kids as it is, right? So I think that's something to really consider. But but here's the thing for for those of you who think I'm like just hating on Santa Claus, what's funny about it is St. Nicholas, the actual St. Nicholas, 
might be one of my fa- favorite dudes from history, all right? Because there's this one story that I remember the first time I heard it just dying laughing, and I reread it again today and started laughing again. So uh, some of you may have heard of this, but I'm assuming most of you have not. So this is about the real St. Nicholas. So I'm just going to read this. This is actually from like the St. Nicholas Society of blah, 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 something or other. So uh, I just basically broke it down to a few paragraphs, but let me read this to you, all right? In AD 325, Emperor Constantine convened the Council of Nicaea, the very first ecumenical council. More than 300 bishops came from all over the Christian world to debate the nature of the Holy Trinity. It was one of the early church's most intense theological questions. Arius from Egypt was teaching that Jesus the Son was not equal to God the Father. Arius forcefully argued his position at length. The bishops listened respectfully. As Arius vigorously continued, Nicholas became more and more agitated. Finally, he could no longer bear what he believed was essential being essentially being attacked. The outraged Nicholas got up, crossed the room, and slapped Arius across the face. <laughs> the, the bishops were shocked. It was unbelievable that a bishop would lose control and be so hot-headed in such a solemn assembly. They brought Nicholas to Constantine. Constantine said even though it was illegal for anyone to strike another in his presence, in this case, the bishops themselves must determine the punishment. The bishop stripped Nicholas of his bishop's garments, chained him, and threw him into jail. That would keep Nicholas away from the meeting. When the council ended, a final decision would be made about his future. The Council of Nicaea agreed with Nicholas's views, deciding the question against Arius. The work of the council produced the Nicene Creed, which to this day many Christians repeat weekly when they stand and say what they believe. So anyway, so basically Santa Claus or who we're going to say St. Nicholas was a gangster, which is pretty awesome. He disagreed with this, what this guy was saying, this heresy that was saying that he just literally couldn't control himself and he walked across the room and smacked him. So no, I'm not advocating that if you get into a debate with somebody and you don't like what they've said, that you should go and smack them. But if I was in the room and saw it happen, I'd probably laugh. So moving on. All right, guys, next question. Did the college football playoff selection committee get it right? Okay, so as you guys know, uh, the college football playoff for this year has been set with Alabama being number one, Clemson number two, Notre Dame number three, and OU number four. And so, no, in my opinion, the college football selection committee did not get it right. And so some of you may think where I'm going with this, but let me just kind of give you my top six to kind of give you an idea. These are who I think the best six teams in the country are in order. Okay. Number one, Alabama. Number two, Georgia. Number three, Clemson. Number four, OU. Number five, Notre Dame. Number six, Ohio State. Okay. So in my opinion, obviously I know Georgia is a two loss team and to you Clemson and Notre Dame fans out there, you're like, what? They're undefeated. Why would they be better? I honestly think right now that Georgia would smash Clemson, OU, Notre Dame, and Ohio State. Again, we'll never know. We're like We have no idea why. I can't remember who Georgia actually got uh, got uh, hooked up with in the bowl game. Oh, was it Texas? Anyway, yeah, I'll look it up later. Who cares? But the thing about it is I think they're clearly the second best team in the country. Yes, they lost to Auburn earlier in the year. It was not a, it was not a good-looking game that they lost, but they took Bama to the brink, right? I mean, absolutely to the brink. So in my opinion, I think that Georgia should have been in it. However, I don't think that you could have gotten rid of OU. I think OU did what they had to do. Um, They were a one-loss team. They played in a terrible conference. So again, OU was the best team in a horrible conference. But but in my 
opinion. Uh, it would have been weird for Georgia to be in there above OU with the two losses, so I understood it. Um, but I, I guess if I were predicting this, um, well, let's look at how the actual matchups are going to go. So we got Bama versus OU. I think Bama wins this game uh, fairly comfortably, but I don't think it's going to be this route, right? If I can take you all back a few years uh, to where Alabama and OU met in the Sugar Bowl, it was a letdown for Alabama because they were thinking they might be in the national title game, and then here they are having to play OU in the Sugar Bowl. Um, and then uh, I can't remember that quarterback's name for OU. I know you guys are freaking out right now, but is that guy that literally had like one good game his entire career and it just so happened to be in the Sugar Bowl against Alabama. That year, if they had played nine more times, Alabama probably wins all nine of them, but they just had <laughs> this one night where things just worked out in their favor. But the thing about it is, is you just can't doubt a team that has Kyler Murray on it. You really just can't. Uh, Bama, when they have struggled, it's with quarterbacks that can, you know, extend uh, the play a little bit, get out of the pocket and make some things happen. But I think Alabama wins the game fairly comfortably. And then in Clemson versus Notre Dame, I am not a believer in Notre Dame. I think they suck. Here's the thing. Clemson and Notre Dame, neither of them have really played anybody, but I think Clemson's the real deal. Their defense is absolutely insane. Um, gosh, who did Notre Dame play? To my Notre Dame people out there, shoot me an email. Who did they play this year? What were their impressive victories, right? I just don't see it. This is just another time where Notre Dame that plays outside of a conference gets into something because they basically didn't play anybody and they're going to get into this. I think Clemson's going to smash Notre Dame. I don't think it's going to be close. I think they're going to smash them. So I got Bama and Clemson in the title game. I know Clemson got one over Bama a few years ago, but I got Bama. I mean, until, until otherwise proven, Bama is the best team in the country. They have the best coach in the country. They have the best coaching staff in the country. Everything they do is incredible and top-notch. So uh, till further notice, Bama is uh, the team to beat, and I predict that they will win in January. So let's go on to the next question, which is kind of tied into the previous one, talking college football is here, which is, do you agree with Kyler Murray as the pick for the Heisman? So no, I do not agree that he should have won the Heisman. So Again, here I am in Oklahoma. I can actually like feel the heat from the people outside with the pitchforks and the and the torches and everything like that. But but here here's the big thing, right? It was also it was you know Tua Tagovailoa and Kyler Murray. That was those were the only two options. The Ohio State quarterback was really not in this. He was just a guy that they needed to hang out in New York while the other two were vying for this spot. Um, really, it feels like those two are kind of one A and one B. They feel really really close. But this is why I would have given it to Tua. Tua actually took 200 less snaps than Kyler Murray this year. Actually, a little over 200 less snaps than Kyler Murray, okay? So can you imagine what Tua's stats would have looked like if he had played 200 more plays? 200 more plays. Think of the passing yards, the rushing yards. He's not much of a rusher. The touchdowns, just think about that because you kept seeing these side-by-side comparisons of what their offensive numbers were in the year. It's like, is nobody going to take into account the fact that he took 200 less snaps? Anybody? Is anyone going to talk about this? And because here's the thing is I've heard a lot of people, especially around here in, in OU country, people downgrade what Tua did because of how good Alabama is. But you can't just do that in a vacuum, right? Because do we also downgrade what Kyler did because he's being protected by the best offensive line in the country? I, I think I think OU clearly has the best offensive line in the country. I think they've had it the last two years in a row. So do we downgrade what he's been able to accomplish? I mean, do, do we downgrade Murray because he played against the, the trash Big 12 defenses all season? Like name, aside from Texas, who is pretty good, name a good defensive team in the Big 12. Like you, you can't do it, right? So, so again, it feels like they're kind of 1A, 1B. I wasn't, I wasn't mad. I figured Kyler Murray would win because, you know, Tua 
kind of laid an egg. Uh, he was a little injured in the SEC title game and then was knocked out of the SEC title game. I think if he went in there and threw for 250 yards and you know threw for three touchdowns and they won comfortably against Georgia, then we're probably sitting here talking about Tua being the Heisman Trophy winner, but that's just not how it worked out. So for my money, I would have voted for Tua, but absolutely I can see the argument for Kyler, Kyler Murray. But <clears throat> this is something that's really important that I think we need to bring up, which was not related to this question when I got it, which is the hack job that was done by the USA Today within hours of Kyler Murray being announced as a Heisman Trophy winner. So for those of you who don't understand what happened, Kyler Murray, he's 21. I think he's 21 years old right now. So a USA Today article came out from a guy who I'm not even going to name because he's not important about some homophobic tweets that um, Kyler Murray sent out when he was 15 years old, 14 or 15. It was one of those. We'll, We'll just go with 15. When he was 15 years old, He apparently used a homophobic slur, what is considered a homophobic slur, the F word, towards some of his friends. And the thing about this that I felt was incredibly inappropriate is that this was a hack job from the beginning. This guy's article was ready to go. It wasn't like, oh, Kyler Murray popped up on his timeline. He got a notification from somebody that, oh, this random kid uh, won the Heisman. And then he's like, Oh, I don't know who this is. So let me just go to Twitter and plug in his name. Oh, let me just scroll through six years worth of tweets. Oh my gosh. He said the F word. I don't like, I'm going to destroy this person. They had it ready to go. The gun was loaded. They just had to take the shot. And we, and we live in this outrage culture now where, listen, I'm not saying what he said is appropriate. I did an entire episode on this podcast about why I stopped using that word, right? Go, go back and listen to it. It's the only episode that's been edited by iTunes, right? The, the, the title has been edited by iTunes. But at the end of the day, guys, this, is, this was a hack job. And just ask yourself, if you, were, if you were absolutely taken aback and offended by what this kid did, I want you to go back to when you were 15 and think of the things that you said, think of the things that you did, the things that you thought, the philosophies that you had, the opinions that you had. And if you still act like that and have those opinions now as an adult, I have some serious misgivings about your future and it being positive in any way, shape or form. We all evolve and we, we all look back or should look back on who we were five, 10, 15, 20 years ago and be like, Oh my goodness, what a freaking idiot I was. And and again, here's the thing guys is as a 32 year old, I don't want to look back on the things I did when I was 25 and think that I was doing it okay. Because whenever I look back at the age of 25, I'm like, God, what a stupid moron you were. Much less 15. My goodness. Can you imagine what what life would be like if everything you did as a 15-year-old was recorded? Because we have social media now. For most of you guys listening, when you were 15, there may not have even been the internet. You know what I mean? And so, like, there was none of this, you know, stream of consciousness that you could just bleh, put out in a tweet, right? And so, again... I think Kyler Murray was was unfairly uh, maligned in all of this. He said something really stupid and offensive whenever he was a kid. He wasn't directing it towards a homosexual in a derogatory way. I bet he regrets saying it. I bet he doesn't say it anymore. But I, I just didn't like that. It, it made me want to root for the guy, right? Because I don't have any problems with the guy. Like, do we really? Are we really going to root against him now? Are we going to root for him to not be the next Bo Jackson? You know, are we going to root for him to not play baseball and football? because he said something stupid six years ago in a tweet. 
goodness, man, it's just tough, tough time to live, guys. So if you've got a, if you've got bad uh, posts in your passive uh, social media, perhaps you should uh, hop on that and get to scrubbing. So here we go. Next question: Is smoking cigarettes unchristian? Okay, so uh, I got this question actually a really, really long time ago, and I couldn't really figure out a way to sneak it into any of the other episodes. But just like with a lot of other things, the Bible doesn't mention smoking directly. Okay, so uh, I think on another podcast, I was asked about weed and kind of went into some different uh, ideas about that. But the thing about it is, is we can surmise things from the from the Bible that kind of give us clues as to what God, how God would feel about something. Right. Uh, From the very beginning, this is clearly not a salvation issue. So if your pastor smokes, I don't think that means you need to question whether or not he's going to be going to heaven. So that's the first thing. But I feel like the easiest thing for us to look at is in 1 Corinthians and chapter 6. And so I think this gives us some hints as to where we should be looking when we're looking at this issue. I feel like this is the most helpful. So let me go ahead and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 12, and then we'll, we'll skip down to the end here in a little bit. So let's start in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So that's verse 12. And so there are other, some, some other translations that may say it a little bit better. This is from the English Standard Version. But the thing about it is, is do you know anyone or do you know very many people that smoke cigarettes that isn't mastered by them? I mean, just think about that. Most of the people that I know that smoke cigarettes, including some very, very, very important people in my life, they're mastered by them. Like they're absolutely not in control. And and so that's kind of the thing is, you know, I've talked about on this podcast how I, I'll drink whiskey and I'll smoke cigars and I'll do things like that, but I've never been out of control. Like I've never felt like, oh gosh, I have to have a drink today or I have to have a cigar today and I'm just not gonna be able to get through. I, I kind of in this, in this habit where if I'm having a bad day, I make sure I don't drink or have a cigar. Like I, I make sure of it. Because I don't ever want to get that mental thing where, okay, I was really stressed out and I was really freaking out and then I had some whiskey and then, oh, okay, you know, everything calmed down. I, I should be able to calm myself down, right? I should be able to have that amount of control. And and again, for those of you who aren't familiar with the difference between cigarettes and cigars, cigarettes, you inhale into your mouth and also inhale into your lungs. Uh, with cigars, you, you don't do that. And I, I know that to be true in terms of the difference between how dangerous those things are for you from a health perspective, because at a lot of life insurance companies, uh, if you've ever been underwritten for life insurance, uh, for a lot of the big ones, you can have up to 24 cigars a year and be considered a non-smoker. Right. So uh, one cigar every couple of weeks and be considered a non-smoker. But if you had like a cigarette this year, you're considered a smoker. Right. So that's kind of the difference. But then we can kind of get down a little bit further into first Corinthians chapter six and we get even more clues as to where God would probably sit on this issue. So I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So this scripture has been talked about a lot. Uh, and a lot of people that tend to smoke or do things that are damaging to their body, they'll be like, well, what about people that eat, you know, uh, a lot of food? What about people that don't eat healthy? What about this? What about that? And, and the thing is, is I would agree with them. If you're not honoring your body because you're just eating crap all the time and drinking gravy to wash it down, that's a problem. Obviously we've talked about taking care of yourself and and being gluttonous and eating things that that are not good for you. Uh, I think those things can get into the sinful category. Uh, But I think the, the cigarettes issue is, is pretty straightforward. 
I mean, socially now, just think about it. When's the last time you just had a buddy that was like, hey, will you come outside with me so I can smoke a cigarette? Like, we don't really see that anymore. Obviously, you'd be hard-pressed to find a restaurant where you can smoke indoors anymore, Uh, even in countries where that was just kind of a thing. I remember years ago, whenever they banned it in Ireland, and that was like some sort of crazy thing. But um, yeah, I think uh, smoking cigarettes is unchristian. I don't think it's something that you can do and claim that you are glorifying uh, God with your body uh, and honoring the price that was paid with it. So... There's my answer on that. All right, next question. Uh, I would like your predictions on these upcoming UFC fights. Okay, so uh, there's actually, okay, there's there's a lot listed here. So uh, let's just start at the top. So it looks like these are fights uh, as early as this weekend, if you're listening to this on time and someone's through February of next year. So, but okay, so uh, let's start with the first one. So this is actually a fight that's this weekend. This is Kevin Lee versus Al Iaquina. And so this is December the 15th and it's going to be on Big Fox. This is actually the last fight card on the Fox deal. So the UFC signed a deal with Fox uh, years ago and it's been a long-standing deal, but yeah, they have a new deal signed with ESPN. And so this fight is actually the second time these guys have fought. So um, interestingly enough, a lot of people don't really realize that. I think they fought in like 2013 or 2014 or something like that. So it's been a while uh, and it's at lightweight. It's at 155. But in my opinion, I think Kevin Lee is going to win this fight. I think Kevin Lee... Um, he was a meteoric rise. He had that interim title shot against Tony Ferguson and he looked good in that first round and, you know, got, uh, got submitted in the second round. Uh, you know, but he had some complications. He had staph infection going into that fight. Um, it's super impressive guy though. Like he is an incredibly impressive athlete. He's still really, really young. Al Iaquina actually won the first fight by decision. Uh, but as good as Al Iaquina is and as tough as he is, Kevin Lee, has gotten considerably better than this fight. Al Iaquina is certainly better, but Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee's on another level. And if this wasn't like the most stacked division in the history of mixed martial arts, Kevin Lee would probably already be a champion. And so let me just run down actually the this division from one through ten because this is just an incredibly deep division. I mean, when I think back on the last twenty five years or so that I've been following mixed martial arts, I can't remember a single time when there was a single weight class that was this stack. So let's go from top to bottom. So the champion right now is Habib Nurmagomedov, the number one contender. So the first ranked guy is Tony Ferguson. Number two, Conor McGregor. Number three, Dustin Poirier. Number four, Kevin Lee. Number five, Edson Barbosa. Number six, Justin Gaethje. Number seven, Anthony Pettis. Number eight, Al Iaquina. Number nine, Nate Diaz. And number 10, Michael Chiesa. So uh, Michael Chiesa is actually technically at 170 now. He's actually going to have his first fight at 170 here in the next month or so. Um, but He's still technically 155, or if he gets rocked up there at 170, he might come right back down. And here's the other thing. There's a couple of wild cards kind of lurking in the 155-pound division. One is Cowboy Cerrone, whose next fight is going to be at 155 because he fought at 170 for a while, but he's going to start cutting back to 155. And also, I don't know if y'all watched over the weekend, but Max Holloway, the 145-pound champion, he absolutely destroyed Brian Ortega. I mean, one of the most impressive striking performances I've ever seen. And Dana White has basically come out and said he's tired of seeing Max go to 145. This is a guy that is a huge 145 pounder. Like the cut that he has to make to get down to 145 is pretty substantial. And Dana White's just, he's kind of over it, right? Uh, He's beaten the guys he needs to beat at 145, uh, basically save for Frankie Edgar. But if he's added in there, he goes basically right to the top. He's right up there with, with Habib, Tony, and Connor. So... 
Really, really deep division, so this is a fight that has implications for that division, so that'll be a fun one coming up this weekend, free on Fox. So the next fight they're asking me about is Chris Cyborg versus Amanda Nunes, and so this is on December 29th, so last card of the year at UFC 230, uh, 232. And so this is for the women's featherweight title, so this is the 145-pound title. So if you're not aware, Amanda Nunes is the 135-pound cha- uh, champion, the bantamweight champion, and Cyborg is the current featherweight champion. So Amanda Nunes is actually going up to fight Chris Cyborg. And so Amanda Nunes has, has just been destroying people. She, of course, destroyed Ronda Rousey. Chris Cyborg is undefeated, has never never lost, and she's never actually looked bad inside the octagon. Uh, you know, probably one of her most impressive victories was over Holly Holm. But in my opinion, I don't see any way that Chris Cyborg loses this fight. This is not a fight that's going to go to the ground. Both of these women love to stand and bang. And so, but the thing about it is, is Chris Cyborg walks around probably at about 175 pounds, 180 pounds or so. She is a huge human being. She's a big woman. And so she has to make a pretty substantial cut to get down to 145 as well. Um, and Amanda Nunes, when you talk to people that have fought her or sparred with her, they say she hits like a man, that she's absolutely just a brutal, brutal striker. Um, but again, if you've ever seen Cyborg fight, she just doesn't get rocked by anything. She doesn't seem to to ever be hurt. I think Amanda Nunes might be the hardest fought she's ever had, uh, other than Holly Holm. But I really don't see any two ways about it. I think Chris Cyborg takes this pretty easily. All right, so let's get into the next fight here. It's actually on the same card as Cyborg versus Nunes, and that's John Jones versus Alexander Gustafson too. So, ooh, buddy, this this fight has been. We've been patiently anticipating this fight for years. This fight actually is the second time they fought. They fought back in 2013. And again, I think I've talked about this on a, on a previous podcast. It was the best fight I've ever seen. It was just an incredible, it was the greatest fight in UFC history, I think, is what I said. is either that one or the Rory McDonald, uh, Robbie Lawler fight. I can't remember which one I said. Just one of the greatest fights ever. Um, it's going to be for the lightweight title, which, uh, if you're confused, Daniel Cormier currently has that title in hand, but apparently as soon as the cage door closes and those two are inside, Daniel Cormier will be stripped of the light heavyweight title. And then this, this title will be, uh, up for grabs between these two men. So if you think back to that first fight, um, Gustafson, in my opinion, won the first three rounds and lost the last two. I've rewatched that fight a couple of times. And I still think that, I still think that Gustafson should have won that decision. There was actually one judge that gave four rounds to John Jones, which is absolute hogwash. Uh, Alexander Gustafson is the only guy to successfully take John Jones down in his entire career. It's actually, it's pretty incredible what happened. Um, But the first time there was a lot of I guess John Jones didn't really train that hard. Apparently he was partying the week of the fight. He just wasn't taking this, you know, Swedish guy seriously. And he went in there and got busted and almost lost his title. So uh, I think it's it just an incredible fight. Uh, but neither one of these guys has fought for a while. Obviously, John Jones popped after he uh, fought DC, ended up, you know, again, uh, basically snitching and getting out of a long suspension. And Gustafson's been injured. Uh, but in my opinion, I think John Jones wins this fight, uh, even though I think Gustafson won it the first time around. Um, if Gustafson had been a little bit more active here recently. I'd probably have a different opinion, but he's been out for quite a while. And so is John Jones, but John Jones is just a different animal, different dude. So I think John Jones, uh, again, gets his title back. All right. Next fight they have me picking is Henry Cejudo versus TJ Dillashaw. So this is a fight coming up January 19th. So this is going to be a UFC fight night. I believe this is the first ESPN card. And so, uh, this fight is actually for the flyweight title. So Cejudo is the newly crowned flyweight champion. That's 125 pound champion. And TJ Dillashaw is the bantamweight champion at 135 pounds. And so if you're following this for any length of time, uh, Henry Cejudo actually beat Mighty Mouse, uh, 
a few months ago and took his title. So Mighty Mouse, uh, Demetrius Johnson had defended that title over and over and over and over and over and over. Um, no one was even getting close. And then Cejudo beat him by a very narrow margin split decision. Um, and then, you know, Mighty Mouse was traded to one championship and we got Ben Askren. We, I'm, like I'm the UFC, the UFC got Ben Askren. And so this is basically one of those fights where it's kind of a foregone conclusion that if TJ Dillashaw goes down there and wins the 125 pound title, that the UFC will actually fold up that division. So they will have their third double champ, first being Connor, second being uh, DC, and then now it would be TJ Dillashaw. Um, so I, I think it's a really interesting fight because Henry Cejudo, obviously he's an Olympic gold medalist wrestler, uh, UFC champion. Uh, he's a big 125 pounder, so I think TJ Dillashaw and him will be about the same size by the time they fight. This is an interesting fight because it's the first time that TJ Dillashaw has gone down to 125 pounds. He swears he can do it. Uh, but I just got to tell you, when I see him weigh in at 135, I don't see any fat. Like, I just don't see it. So he's going to have to lean down in a couple of other ways because that's, you know, another 10 pounds and that's a lot. But they seem pretty confident that he can get down there. But guys, in my opinion, I think TJ Dillashaw takes this fight. TJ Dillashaw is the most underrated fighter in all of mixed martial arts. And that might be crazy to you to hear that because he's a champion and he's defended his belt. Uh, you know, he knocked out Cody Garbrandt to take the belt and then knocked him out again in a more impressive fashion to keep it. But this is a guy that I don't think should have ever lost the belt. I think he won his fight against Dominic Cruz three rounds to two. So he never should have lost his belt. It took him years to get back to a title shot, even though he was active and fighting the entire time. TJ Dillashaw is on another level. And so I think it's incredible what he's done. And it's incredible that he hasn't gotten the respect that he deserves. But I think he takes his title and they close down the division. Next fight is... Uh, on January 26th, so this would be the next week at UFC 233, it's currently Robbie Lawler versus Ben Askren. And I say currently because I gotta be honest with you, I don't even know that this fight is gonna happen. Um, Ben Askren has been talking a lot of trash about Colby Covington, who's the interim champion right now, we think, at 170 pounds. But then Kamaru Usman has looked really, really good, and he actually won more recently. So I think the UFC might actually drop Robbie out of this fight and make Ben Askren fight Colby Covington or Kamaru Usman for an interim title. I really think that that might happen. So, I mean, we'll see. But let's assume this fight actually happens. I think Ben Askren wins this fight, <coughs> excuse me, which which you might think is a little bit crazy because Robbie Lawler is a former champion. I know he's got, he's had really good uh, luck against wrestlers. Ben Askren is obviously a pounding wrestler, but Robbie Lawler's just had knee surgery. He looked like crap the last time he fought against um, RDA. So I think Ben Askren wins this fight. But in my opinion, I would really have to think about if he ends up fighting Colby Covington or Kamaru Usman. I, I may have a different opinion, but as of right now, I think he beats Robbie Lawler. All right, next fight is Israel Adesanya versus Anderson Silva. So that's on February 9th of next year at UFC 234. Uh, essentially, this is the number one contender match. Uh, it's going to be in the same card as Robert Whitaker versus Kelvin Gastelum. So they're going to be fighting for the middleweight championship. But uh, Israel Adesanya, is kind of, he's called the style bender. He's, he's seen as really the next big thing. Uh, the UFC is pinning a lot of their future hopes on this guy, which is why I think they're giving him Anderson Silva. So Anderson Silva is the GOAT of this division, the greatest 185-pounder ever, uh, defended it the most times, most incredibly, um, but hasn't been effective, that active. He's popped a couple times later in his career. His his skills have obviously diminished. But if Israel Adesanya can get a, get a win over Anderson Silva, then this will obviously catapult him a little bit. So I'm one of those people that I didn't really like that apparently Dana White offered Anderson Silva the same opportunity as Israel Adesanya, which is Anderson Silva, even though you're not really anywhere near the top of this division anymore, if you win, you get a title shot. But I think they just got that to get him to take the fight because I think the UFC is pretty comfortable with the fact, as am I, that Israel Adesanya is going to win this fight. 
I think it's going to be brutal. I think at some point he's going to toy with Anderson Silva. I don't think Anderson Silva can hurt this young kid, and the the kid's not going to be uh, dumb enough to allow Anderson Silva to get off the shots that he wants. Anderson Silva might try pulling guard. <laughs> Excuse me. He might try pulling guard or doing something like that, trying to get him on the ground. But I just don't see uh, this going well for Anderson Silva, which I'm not sad about because I don't like that guy. And then the last fight they wanted me to predict is Robert Whitaker versus Kelvin Gastelum. So this is a long-awaited middleweight championship. So Robert Whitaker hasn't fought uh, since he was injured against Yoel Romero. And Kelvin Gastelum, uh, they both were on the Ultimate Fighter and did some things. This fight doesn't really have a lot of oomph behind it. Neither one of these guys really talk trash. Um, they're not really big names. Uh, I, I gotta be honest with you. Like I, I know exactly who Robert Whitaker is, but I have some, I sometimes have, have trouble remembering his name and I follow the sport like crazy. Uh, but in my opinion, I don't see really a scenario where Kelvin Gastelum wins this fight. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum didn't beat Chris Weidman and Chris Weidman has, should have been in here, but then Chris Weidman obviously got finished by Jacare here recently, blah, blah, blah. To those of you who don't even watch MMA, you're like, what is this guy talking about? Get to the next question. Don't worry. We're almost done with this question, but Robert Whitaker is an amazing fighter. If Yoel Romero can't beat Robert Whitaker and he fought him twice, I don't think Kelvin Gastelum is going to win. Yoel Romero is a mutant. He's a cyborg like from the future, and he couldn't even beat Robert Whitaker. So uh, it looks like uh, sometime next summer we're going to see Robert Whitaker versus Israel Adesanya, probably in Australia, which will be absolutely incredible. Okay, so for all you MMA haters out there, I'm done with the MMA, so we're going to move on to the next question here. What time do you wake up, and what is your go-to morning routine? So... I know this isn't probably the best thing to do, but I, it it changes every day when I wake up. So let me just take you through a normal week. So <clears throat> Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I don't train jujitsu in the mornings. Well, here that's probably not the best way. Let me start with Tuesday and then I'll wrap around to Monday. So Tuesday morning, I normally train jujitsu at 6 a.m. And same thing Thursday morning. We train gi on Tuesday and no gi on Thursday. So on those days, what I will do is I will wake up about 5.15 and I'll get to the gym around 6, train for an hour, and then I'll come home and lift. Now on Wednesday, uh, I will just wake up, uh, I don't know, maybe 6, 6.30 and I'll go into the garage, get a lift in early, maybe do some cardio or some stretching and then get on with my day. And then Friday, uh, depending upon how I'm feeling from Thursday, because Thursday nights I do uh, usually two jujitsu classes back to back. So just basically take you through my Thursday. I do jujitsu at 6 a.m. I come home and lift, and it's usually a deadlift day, so it's a pretty difficult lifting day. And then that evening, I do two jujitsu classes. So a lot of times by Friday, my body's looking for some recovery. So I may sleep in a little bit on Friday, maybe sleep until like 7, 7.30, and then get on with my day. Saturday is my relaxation day. That's like my Sabbath day. So that is, I stay up late Friday night and I'll watch shows or movies or something like that. And my wife knows, do not wake me up Saturday morning unless the house is on fire. And even at that point, you might, you might think about it twice. So, um, that's the day where I sleep in. So I'll sleep to nine, 10, maybe after that or something like that. Really kind of get caught up a little bit on my sleep. Uh, Sundays, obviously wake up early and go to church and do those types of things. But then back around to Monday, um, Sundays, I will typically do two jujitsu classes. I'll do one o'clock in the afternoon and then seven o'clock in the evening. And so usually by Monday, uh, I'm looking for a little bit more active rest as well. So Monday, I will typically wake up around 6.30 or 7 and do yoga or some sort of stretching routine or something like that. So I know that was a little convoluted, but you know, I'm not Jocko Willink. I'm not waking up at 4 o'clock every morning, no matter what. So, uh, But I stay pretty consistent. Um, it's usually only if I'm sick or taking an active rest week where I'll get a little bit more sleep, sleeping a little bit more, but that's my typical morning routine. All right, next question. You constantly demolish strongholds, whether a man is imprisoned by the language he uses or the lies he believes. 
How did you train yourself to always look for and spot it? And how to how do you consistently tear it down from a place of humility instead of pride? So again, this is a question just talking about demolishing strongholds and things in your life. But again, I think that a lot of this comes down to to inner weakness. Okay. And so I'm I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't have a role in this at all, but I think for the most part, God has given us the ability to overcome a lot of the things that are problems for us, to demolish the strongholds ourselves. And where we are weak, he is strong and we can depend on him. But I think for a lot of us, we just go straight there and we're not allowing God to teach us a lesson through the struggle, that allowing us to struggle a little bit. And so I think the easy thing towards the end of that question is, you know, how do you make sure you do this from a place of humility instead of pride is obviously knowing where you're getting it from, because no matter what God's accomplishing it, right? Because he's either helping you through it directly or he gave you the skills to begin with to be able to work through it yourself, right? So either way, he's in the equation. So I think that was pretty easy. That could be a, a kind of complicated question, but I just wanted to kind of get through that a little bit quicker for you guys. All right, next question. Where will Manny Machado and Bryce, Har- Bryce Harper sign? And so obviously for you baseball guys out there, there are some huge uh, fish on the pond uh, during the winter meetings and in the off season. And the, there's none bigger than Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. I can't remember an off season that was like this, where you had two players of this caliber, both hitting the free agent market at the same time. So both of these guys are in their primes and entering into some of their best years. They're both 26 years old and both of them are going to get like mega, mega paid. Um, so I think a lot of people consider Manny Machado to be a little bit of a better catch than Bryce Harper. Uh, for some of you, maybe you've never heard of Manny Machado. If you're just kind of a lay baseball fan, most people have heard of Bryce Harper, but you know, Bryce Harper was obviously a celebrity basically from the time he was 16. Uh, he was, you know, on the cover of Sports Illustrated while he was still a teenager, made his MLB debut, incredibly young. So just, he's just been around, but, um, there's been a lot of speculation about where these guys would sign. So Bryce Harper has obviously played his entire career with the Nationals. Uh, Manny Machado played his entire career with the Orioles until he was traded midseason to the Dodgers. Um, and it looked like the Dodgers were maybe going to try to keep him around, but, uh, I guess it wasn't the, the marriage that we all thought. But let me start with Machado. Uh, if I'm putting a bet down right now, I say he signs with the New York Yankees. And I've got a good buddy that's a Yankees fan. He's like, no way, but he's signing a 10 plus year deal. Right, he'll probably sign a ten-year deal. It'll definitely be over three hundred million dollars. Um, but I just don't see two ways. I don't see another way around it. I don't see another team basically getting in there and giving him the money that he wants. Apparently, he's very fond of New York. Uh, one of his mentors is Alex Rodriguez, who is still on the payroll with the New York Yankees. And so uh, that's there's just too much smoke here. But I think if the New York Yankees don't sign him, I feel like the Phillies are lurking. They've already said that they're down to spend and spend recklessly this offseason. So, uh, you know, they might dangle a $350 million carrot in front of the guy and he might sign. But I really think he goes to the Yankees. But now for Bryce Harper, um, this is a guy from the beginning that I didn't think he was going to stay in Washington. It just didn't make sense. Um, You know, it's kind of to be determined whether or not this guy's actually a winner because it's so hard to be a position player and win an entire series or a playoff for your team. That just doesn't really happen. Pitchers can kind of do that, you know, a la Madison Bumgarner uh, when they beat the Royals. But for Bryce Harper, uh, I thought forever that he was going to go to the Cubs. He's He's really good friends with Chris Bryant. They're both from Las Vegas. Uh, But the Cubs actually sort of have money issues which seems ridiculous because that team basically prints money. Um, But if I had to put a bet down right now, I would say he signs with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, 
the Washington Nationals have come out and basically said they don't assume that Bryce Harper will resign. The Yankees have basically ruled him out if we believe that. Uh, there's not really a place for him on the Yankees roster. They already have like five or six outfielders, and it doesn't make sense that Bryce Harper would play first base. So I think the Dodgers are going to make that push. Um, I don't see Bryce Harper going to a smaller market than Washington, D.C. I know a lot of Cardinals fans. I love my Cardinals fans out there, but this idea that Harper is coming to St. Louis does not make any sense. Just because he tweeted once about how much he likes Bush Stadium like five years ago, that doesn't mean he's going to want to play in St. Louis regularly. This is a big market guy. He's a big market personality, and it doesn't really get bigger than Los Angeles. So I think the Dodgers will pick him up, but I think Philadelphia, the Phillies are lurking there as well. Again, ready and uh, willing to spend money, but I, I don't want to count out the Chicago Cubs either. I think they're they're lurking, but uh, for my hopes, I hope he does not sign with an NL Central team so he can leave the Cardinals alone a little bit. So Machado going to the Yanks and Harper going to the Dodgers. All right, next question. What documentaries would you recommend watching? So um, there's been a lot of documentaries I've watched over the last couple of years, and to be honest with you guys, I've kind of there's been so many movies that came out recently that just disappointed me or just, I didn't want to watch. So I've kind of been more attracted to documentaries. So there were four that I've uh, watched here probably within the last year that I think are really incredible. And so um, I'm not going to include links for where you can find these things because you guys are, you know, you're resourceful. You can find it. So a lot of these are on Netflix or they're on Hulu or they're on Amazon prime, or you can rent them straight through your direct TV box or something like that. So I'll tell you about them. You go find them. The first one is one called Unbranded. This is from 2015, and so I just want to read the description here. So this is four men take a herd of Mustangs on a journey from Mexico to Canada to inspire adoptions for wild horses and burros in government captivity. So it's literally these four guys that are are on this journey, this incredibly long journey, basically taking these Mustangs to Canada um, and just the stuff they run into. And they tell you the story about how these horses even get, get out there and how they're wild and, and you know, what some of the issues that they have as animals. And so it was just a really interesting thing. It was really well done. (laughs) There's a super unlikable character. Uh, He's one of the four guys, but anyway, I thought that was really worthwhile. Uh, The next one would be one called man on fire. This came out or man on wire, not man on fire. That's like a Denzel Washington movie, but man on a wire, man on wire. Good grief. Thompson, man on wire here, man on wire. Okay. 2008. Let me read the description of this one. A look at tightrope walker, Philippe Petit's daring, but illegal high wire routine performed between New York city's world trade centers, twin towers in 1974, what some consider the artistic crime of the century. So you've probably seen these images. If you haven't seen this already, I think, uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt was like, he played this guy in a movie that came out here recently. I don't know that it did well or whatever, but this guy literally was able to string up a wire, uh, a tightrope wire between the twin towers and just basically walked back and forth on them. And it's a documentary that kind of, you know, talks to this guy and it tells you about his whole crew and they interview his crew about how they even got up there and how they got the wire across. And I don't want to ruin it, but it is, it is an incredible, incredible story. And just, I, I get anxiety sitting here right now in my studio, just recording it, just thinking about this guy, like sitting down on the wire and laying down on the wire and just walking back and forth, like just absolutely, absolutely incredible. All right, the next one is Pumping Iron. This is from 1977. Uh, And so this is, uh, the description here is, it's about the world of professional bodybuilding with a focus on the 1975 IFBB Mr. Universe and the 1975 Mr. Olympia competitions. But the entire reason why anybody knows this is because it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? So this is when he was in his prime. I believe he was going for his seventh uh, Mr. Olympia in a row at this point, which was going to basically be the last Mr. Olympia that he would compete in. But it's just an incredibly well done documentary because the thing about it is 
I feel like most people, because of Terminator and and some of these movies that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was in, you know, Conan, that he's just like this brooding Eastern European guy with this horrible uh, accent and stupid haircut and just whatever the thing was. But the dude is like, he's really charming and he's he's really funny. And just this documentary follows him around a lot. And, you know, you just basically like Lou Ferrigno is here training with him. You know, the guy who originally played the Hulk on television. And so it's a really, really entertaining documentary. And the last one I'm going to share with you is one called Gleason. So this is one that came out in 2016. So I'll read the description here. New Orleans Saints Steve Gleason achieved near holy status when he blocked a punt in a game against the Atlanta Falcons. The first the team had played in their hometown after Hurricane Katrina. Years later, at the age of 34, Gleason was diagnosed with ALS, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Director Clay Tweel followed Gleason and his wife, Michelle Ray Verisco, after they learned of Gleason's diagnosis and of Verisco's pregnancy with their son, Rivers. The result is a heartbreaking yet ultimately triumphant film about a man who symbolized for New Orleans refusal to admit defeat and for his loved ones, the strength to survive in the face of debilitating illness. So guys, this is exactly what it sounds like. This is a documentary crew following a guy that is slowly losing his ability to do just about anything. So if you know anything about ALS, you basically get to the point where the only thing on your body that you can move on your own is your eyes. It's it's just an absolutely insane disease for a guy that was an NFL athlete to have such incredible um, an incredible athletic life to to have this happen to him. It's it's so emotional and it's not just about the physical toll that happens to this guy, but the emotional toll it takes on him and clearly his family, his caretakers. It's pretty pretty intense and pretty incredible. So those would be the four that I would throw out to you. The four that just came to the top of my mind. Okay. Next question. What are your thoughts on scheduled counseling for mental and spiritual resilience? And are those thoughts mirrored for marital counseling? So let me just say from the beginning, I don't think they're mirrored because in my opinion, I'm I'm not a huge fan of counseling and, and I'm not being prescriptive here, guys, because I know a lot of guys and, and certainly some that you're listening right now have gotten a lot of value out of it. But I feel like for personal counseling, for mental and spiritual resilience, that you can do this on your own. Now, that is, you know, that is not considering someone who's got an actual mental disorder that actually needs assistance with that. Assistance with that. I'm not saying, all right, just bear down and figure it out. But for a lot of people, if you change your diet and you change your exercise regimen, it, it can take care of a lot of those mental issues that you're having. And on the spiritual resilience side, a lot of that has to do with actually getting in the fight and actually going through materials and learning and doing those types of things. So um, if you have scheduled counseling, you know, maybe just maintenance counseling where you're going to seeing a counselor once a month or something like that. Like I, I certainly wouldn't say I have a problem with that. I'm just questioning whether or not it's maybe necessary if you don't have any, any real ailments. Um, but on the second side on uh, marital counseling, I feel like it's probably a good idea to have somewhat regular marital counseling if you can afford it because it can get really, really expensive. But I know that there's a lot of couples out there that are good. Like they're communicating well, things aren't perfect, but they're absolutely uh, going well for them. But they will still go see a counselor maybe once a quarter just to basically sharpen the saw a little bit. Uh, maybe there's something that they haven't been able to get off their chest that they feel a little bit safer doing in that context. So uh, that makes more sense to me. And the biggest reason that it makes more sense to me is because there's another person there, right? So it's not just you. And for the most part, you can't just tell your wife to be like, all right, we're just going to get up and we're going to fix it. Like you can't just go full Jocko on your wife, right? So 
when there's another party involved and that party is, is the weaker vessel and someone that you are to take care of and you have headship over, then that's something that you need to take into consideration. If they want to have some maintenance counseling or, or maybe you feel like you're in a rut and you need to go to counseling for a few months in a row, you know, see what you can do to make that happen. All right, guys, next question. Is your faith weaker or stronger than it was at the beginning of the year? So this question actually caused me to pause uh, for quite a while to kind of see like, okay, well, you know, what what do they mean by faith and what do you mean by weaker or stronger? Uh, You know, obviously since the beginning of the year, what have I developed? And the thing that I would say is I would say stronger. um, My faith is stronger, but it's because of knowledge. And so let me, let me try to maybe dress that up a little bit or, or explain it in a way that makes more sense. So in my opinion, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Well, that's not really my opinion. I feel like that's, that's true. Christianity is a thinking man's religion. Um, most people think that Christianity is just, you know, a bunch of weirdos that get together and throw their hands up in the air and, you know, uh, praise the spaghetti monster in the sky or whatever the thing might be. But this is a thinking man's religion. We talk about this a lot. We talk about the things we know about apologetics and, and biblical archeology span and those different things. Um, But the reason why I feel like my faith is deeper is because I feel like more than ever, I believe that Jesus died on a cross and was resurrected three days later. I I mean, really, that's the big reason why I feel like my faith is stronger, because it wasn't like, you know, I had some crazy revelations I got in Bible study this year, or there was like a speech I saw that like changed my opinion. But I've taken in a lot of content this year. Right. And one of the things about me staying sharp for this podcast is making sure that I'm putting content out uh, in in being able to put out content on a regular basis is I kind of need to take content in. I need to be feeding on other people's ideas and, and pushing myself and my own philosophies to to be able to come up with content that would be entertaining for y'all to take in. Um, but in doing that, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of sermons, read a lot of books uh, and a lot of blogs that have kind of helped me and, and nothing has swayed me away from the from the reality that Jesus was a real person that died on a cross and was resurrected. And so there's kind of this thing and and I don't know what it is but there's there's a group of guys at my church that are that are kind of in my Sunday school and uh one of the guys was uh, so he sent out something. So there was this place here uh, close by that was called Credo House. It was kind of like this coffee shop that also did like theological training. I think if you go to Credo, C-R-E-D-O, uh, courses.com, credocourses.com, they're like giving away just, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes of some of their theology training courses in English and in Spanish. And it's through the end of the year or through Christmas or something like that. And so one of the guys in our group shared it with the other guys in Sunday school. And some of them were just kind of like, Hey, you know, what would be the reason why we would even need such a thing? And it's like, really? You, you couldn't think of a single idea why you would need, uh, these free resources on theological topics. You couldn't think of a single idea why you should get online and download these topics for free and use it as a blessing for later. Like you couldn't think of a single reason why it would be important for you to maybe get a kind of layman's theological training. And you don't think that could benefit you, your family. Like I I just didn't understand. It's like, what? What? Like, come on, man. And so um, I, I think it's really interesting for a lot of guys that they just, the way they go about strengthening their faith is not by strengthening their mind. And I think that some people I've even heard people say before, like, you know, if all this was true, then why do we need so many apologists? Why do we need all these books about apologetics? If it was just true, it would be apparent. It's like, that's such a stupid way of seeing the world. I mean, the stuff we're, we're keeping our faith in happened 2000 years ago. 
So for 2000 years, people have been trying to destroy this, right? Been trying to tear down Jesus. You know, I did an entire podcast where there's a group of people that think that there was never such a guy as Jesus from Nazareth. Didn't exist, right? You can disagree with the guy, but you can't say he didn't exist. That'd be like me saying, ah, you know, I didn't really agree with George Washington. Uh, I didn't really agree with his viewpoints on uh, these really important issues. So the guy must have not existed. Like, you, you can't say stuff like that. And so because people have been trying to destroy Christianity for the last 2,000 years, yeah, I think it, it makes a lot of sense that we would have apologists and people that help us with tactics on how we could share and defend our faith. Again, we need to be able to be able to give an apol- apologia, like we need to be able to give a defense for why we believe what we believe. So again, my faith is stronger because of the information I took in, and I would encourage all of you guys, go to Credo Courses, find those things, download them, and start building your faith next year as well. All right, guys, next question. I've started to watch a lot of videos that Jeff Durbin has put out. What do you think of his $10 a month platform? Should pastors charge for their content like that? So this is Jeff Durbin of Apology at Church. Obviously, I sort of gave him a pseudo shout out on the last question. But um, there's several uh, entities like, you know, pseudo church entities that are out there. You know, CrossPolitik has, you know, um, an upper membership of some kind. There's a lot of people that do that. And I just got to be honest with you guys, that doesn't bother me at all. I am a capitalist, right? So if you can make money and not rip people life, not rip people off, and if people are willing to give you money for additional content, go for it. Doesn't bother me at all. So I know some people get offended. It's like, oh well, if he was a pastor, why wouldn't he just you know give us all this stuff for free? And, and I get that. But a lot of these pastors give you a ton of stuff for free already. They put out free versions of their books. They do podcasts every week, so you're not having to like pay for their sermons. So it doesn't bother me when a pastor makes money off of that. Now, again, I, I don't know if I've talked about this before. It is a little weird to me that we don't really know how much these pastors are making. We don't know during what hours they're writing these books that they're making a ton of money off of. But the fact that pastors are doing things like this $10 a month video thing, like, yeah, that doesn't bother me at all. Keep going. All right, next question. What is your favorite Christmas song? So this is an easy one. It's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So Emmanuel obviously means God with us, but um, pretty much every version of that song I've ever heard is a good version because it's not a super popular song. And so typically the people that take that song on, uh, for whatever reason, they tend to do a better job with it. But my favorite version of that is the August Burns Red version. Surprise, surprise. But I think that was the second Christmas song that they put out. I think they did Carol Bells first. And then the next year, I think they did O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's just basically from that point on, it's been my favorite Christmas song. So, all right, guys, last question here. So let's get into it. I have been saved for years. I have never led anyone to Christ. And I am afraid to talk about Jesus. Am I really saved? So this is another one that I that I got asked months and months ago. And I was like, man, what in the world do I say here? Because there's a lot of people like that. And so a lot of people have done thinking on this and tried to figure out where people land on it. And so I found a couple of articles that I'm going I'm to briefly go over what they said. Uh, and then I'll leave them here, obviously, for you at the end for you to take down. Uh, the first one is uh, from Desiring God from John, Piper, John Piper's website. And it's called Four Reasons We Don't Share the Gospel. And here's the reason that, that they give. Uh, the first is lack of gospel knowledge. The second is apathy. The third is fear. And the fourth is lack of compassion. So basically lack of compassion for the lost. And then the next one is uh, from a website. It's from the Center for Great Commission Studies. And here are the four reasons that they listed. First, most believers do not consider themselves public speakers. The second is most of the people who teach evangelism training tend to be aggressive. The third is at times evangelism training makes us more self-conscious than self-confident. And the last is... Uh, that it's less about training and more about the Christian subculture we have created today. 
right? So just kind of going into about how we spend a lot of time around, uh, we just don't have a lot of interaction with lost people. We're just kind of in our Christian cocoons and things like that. So, um, so I think those two articles will be helpful for you. Uh, as we try to answer that question. But from my perspective, I I think it's easy to answer the first part is that, uh, or really to answer this question that are you really saved if you've never shared the gospel? Yes. Like there, there are examples from scripture that we have of people that were saved by Jesus. And then we have no, uh, accounting that they actually went and shared that with anybody else. Uh, the criminal on the cross next to Jesus comes to mind, but it is concerning to me. If you are a Christian and you've been a Christian for any length of time, and you've never shared that with anyone. And I think of, of the eight reasons that are listed in those articles, I think the strongest one is fear. Because fear kind of encapsulates a lot of those other ones. Like, oh my gosh, what if they ask me a follow-up question I don't know the answer? Oh my gosh, what if they're smarter than me? Oh my gosh, what if they ask me about the historicity of the Gospels? Oh my gosh, what if they do this? What if they can do that? And so you build it up in your brain as this big thing, and then you end up just not sharing at all. To where it's just like, would you have that same anxiety if you were sharing with somebody like your favorite restaurant and they didn't know about that restaurant and you really, really, really wanted them to go to that restaurant and tell everyone they knew about that restaurant so that they can enjoy it too? I know it's kind of a silly example, but I think it's still appropriate here. And so, um, yeah, that's a tough one, man. Um, for you men out there that have never shared the gospel with somebody or shared the reason why you're a Christian with somebody, um, I would have you do, you should probably do a deep dive into that thought. Maybe don't turn on another podcast episode right after this one. Maybe, maybe dig, dig a little deeper and ask yourself, why is that? Why am I so comfortable giving my opinion about, you know, the college football playoff or about, about this thing or about that thing? You know, why, why is that happening to me? Like, why don't I want to give my opinion about my faith in Jesus or not, not my opinion, my reality of who, who I think Jesus is for me in my life. I think that's an important thing for y'all to dig into. So I'm going to leave you with that. So uh, you should probably consider that a little bit further. All right, guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And specifically, we help you do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So today, uh, we're going to talk about mental resilience. And we're going to start off with, I have uh, given you a YouTube video for the August Burns Red O Come O Come Emmanuel version. So you can check that out. And obviously, if you like it, you can go check them out on iTunes or SoundCloud or, or I, I don't think they're on SoundCloud, but like what are all the things iTunes and you can go buy it somewhere else. I don't know. I don't know where all the stuff is that people listen to, but go find it. Spotify. That was the one I was thinking about. So you can find it on there and give it a listen. But also I included those two articles. So the first one was desiring God. And it was, uh, the name of it was four reasons we don't share the gospel. And then the center for great commission studies. And it's the four reasons many believers don't share the gospel. So you can take that content down and let me know what you think. All right, guys, thanks again for listening into this podcast. I really appreciate you hanging on. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. Just like I said up at the top of the show, if we deserve a five-star review, guys, please leave us one. That is how this will continue to grow. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2019. So if you want me to come speak to your men's event, to your team, to your church, to your company, just let me know. Hit me up via email, info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. Life, and you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Undaunted Life and Facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. You can check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. 
Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.